Hi, everybody. Just a quick disclaimer before we start this week's episode. This conversation with Ilya Budraitskis was recorded on June 8th, 2023, so well before some of the most recent developments in Russia, including Prigozhin's mutiny and everything that has followed since then. Uh, due to circumstances outside of my control, I was not able to publish this in the normal podcast feed at the normal time, so please keep in mind that this conversation is now about five weeks old from when it's being published here in the second week of July. Just want to make that note and so that everybody understands why we didn't discuss Prigozhin's mutiny and any of the most recent developments. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Ilya Budraitskis here on Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That's how you support our project. We've been around for 30 plus years. We're going to be around for many, many more. Counterpunch is a unique space on the left. It provides a platform for many different competing views, both from the United States, but from uh, the broad international left as well. I think Counterpunch is quite useful in that regard, and I've been a reader much longer than I've been hosting this show. So if you agree with that, go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription, be a supporter. We greatly appreciate it. And uh, with that said, I want to turn to my guest today. I'm very, very happy to speak with him, somebody I've been meaning to chat with for quite a while. It's Ilya Budraitskis. Ilya is with us here on Counterpunch. He is a historian and political activist of the Russian left. He is a member of the Russian Socialist Movement, uh, longtime activist, veteran. He's also an author. Uh, the most important book, the one that you absolutely have to get at Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia. Ilya Budraitskis, welcome to Counterpunch. Uh, hello. Thank you for, for the invitation. Thank you so much for your great work. And I want to just begin, well, not so really at the beginning, but kind of at the beginning for many people. And that would be February of last year. Um, Russia launches its invasion of Ukraine. This is, of course, a monumental uh, couple of days, both obviously <laughs> obviously for uh, people in Ukraine, but of course, for those in Russia, those on the left, especially in Russia. So Ilya, tell me about your experience. You heard the news on the morning of the 24th. What happened next? uh yes definitely it was uh, it was a great shock uh for uh, for me 
uh, and, and for many, uh, despite the, the fact that uh, I was following all the <clears throat> very uh, scaring uh, news about the concentration of the Russian troops on uh, Ukrainian border uh, in January uh, 2022 and, and even, uh, even, even in the autumn of um, uh, 2021 and of course we we had a lot of uh, discussions with uh, with my comrades with my colleagues uh, about the possible outcome of this <clears throat> of the situation uh, on Ukrainian border and our let's say main expectation was that uh, the full scale uh, invasion uh, is is hardly possible uh and mostly because of <clears throat> of the lack of any political uh rationality in this decision so it was uh, hard to imagine how let's say putin's russia can't can manage uh, the um uh the uh, political situation in ukraine how ukraine uh could uh, could uh, could be incorporated uh, in uh, into Putin's uh, Russia with uh, the uh, with the presence of the of the Russian troops. So this whole plan uh, looked uh, really like something uh, something unbelievable. And uh, when <clears throat> when it finally uh, happened, of course it was a great uh, great shock. Uh, and uh, the same day in the evening, uh, I joined the anti-war uh, protest in, uh, in Moscow, which was uh, which was not very big, and uh, which was illegal, as most of the protests in uh, in Russia during uh, during past years. Uh, more than. Uh, <clears throat> thousand people were arrested in moscow uh, this uh, this evening and uh, it was clear that uh, the, there is no ground for uh, for um, massive uh, resistance uh, against the uh, against the war so it it, it was quite uh, quite <clears throat> clear that uh, majority of Moscovites, majority of Russians, they are not ready to, to protest, and uh, they uh, they uh, they were taking uh, this um, decision of Putin as a sort of uh, fate, yeah? uh, which which was very typical for the type of uh, political consciousness uh, that was produced in uh, Putin Putinist uh, uh, Russia during all the. 20 years of uh, its uh, existence <clears throat> uh, and uh, then after this um, uh, this protest in Moscow I went to St Petersburg uh, because uh, my wife was uh, was uh, there in the in that moment and uh, I spent uh, like a few days uh, there together we uh, we came to the protests uh, anti-war protests in st petersburg uh, which were actually uh, a bit bigger uh, than in moscow uh, a bit more lively more uh, more active but uh, also they 
represented a tiny minority of uh, of people in St. Petersburg. And what was uh, also important in this protest that uh, only young people were taking part. So so 99% of the of the participants of this protest were uh, people let's say from uh, 18 to 25 uh, and uh, then after after this <clears throat> uh, few days we uh, we decided to leave before you before you get to your decision to leave can you tell me very quickly and i i, I kind of already know the answer but i'd like for you to explain how different what you saw in terms of the anti-war protest was versus the protests that had come around the elections the prior year, which were massive, which were in many cities and were rather widespread. How would you compare and contrast the two, or were they? Uh, I, I will say that uh, the uh, the last massive uh, protests uh, in Russia happened in the very beginning of uh, 2021. 20, uh, 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 when uh, Alexei Navalny came uh, from Germany and was immediately arrested in Russia. So in that moment, I will say some tens of thousands of uh, people uh, came to the streets of, of Moscow and, and other Russian cities, and that was the, the biggest protest uh, before the war. After the parliamentary elections uh, in, in September, uh, of the same year, the protests were uh, were not so big, and and uh, I will say that the that the uh, destruction of the uh, of the of the structures of of Navalny uh, during uh, twenty uh, twenty one uh, was a very important uh, step uh, in the preparation. Uh, to the common uh, common invasion, because the government uh, destroyed the structure which was uh, which was the most uh, let's say effective, which was the most the most attractive, which could be uh, the uh, let's say the the leading uh, the leading body uh, that can uh, organize and was able to. Uh, to organize the, uh, let's say, national-wide uh, protests against the war. And in the moment when the war started, uh, this uh, organization, Navalny organization, was, um, <clears throat> was already uh, uh, labeled as extremist. Uh, it was totally criminalized. Uh, and uh, in fact, all these uh, anti-war protests um, in the beginning of invasion, they were spontaneous. Uh, there, uh, there was no any <clears throat> clear uh, strategy behind this uh, protest, and there, uh, there, there was no any, let's say, organizing body. Okay, so bring us back to a few days after the invasion. You're essentially you're looking at the landscape the political landscape the opportunities that may or may not still be there and you make the decision to leave what motivates that and what happens next so uh you have to understand that during uh, this uh, few days after after the start uh, of of the invasion the the situation was changing like rapidly like in a few days uh, all the 
<clears throat> opposition media uh, that remained <laughs> until that moment they uh they, they were shut down uh also all the flights uh, to the european uh, countries to the european union uh, they were cancelled the first uh, sanctions uh, against russia uh, were already implemented uh, so um, the future was very unclear let's say yeah and the first idea was to uh, to li to leave the the country maybe for for some time maybe for for some weeks just uh, just to uh, to you know to to have a look what will uh, will, will going on and also the perspectives of the of the war was uh, was very unclear because even after uh, the uh, first three days, um, uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was visible that the Putin's, uh, initial Putin's plan uh, didn't work, uh, that uh, Kyiv uh, uh, was not uh, uh, taken over, uh, that uh, <clears throat> uh, this, uh, this war uh, will, uh, will continue for 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 some time, uh, and <clears throat> the outcome of all this situation uh, was uh, was very unclear. Okay, let me let me ask you if you could to explain for us, for our for our listeners, for our viewers, how we would describe the left in Russia, because we have obviously we have one of the one of the largest parties in the country, which is the traditional the KPRF, the Communist Party that we know we have smaller parties as well. There are other groups that might make up what you might call the broad left trade unions and so forth. Could you just sketch out what the Russian left looks like for our listeners? Uh, I will. Uh probably explain uh, how uh, um, what it looked like uh, to the moment uh, when uh, when this uh, this war was started so to this moment uh, Russia already became a authoritarian um, authoritarian state uh, already uh, many uh, people became political prisoners uh and from the left uh, as as well uh that was a country which was already in let's say uh eight years uh conflict with uh, with um, ukraine it was a country which was uh already very much affected by the chauvinistic uh, imperialist uh, propaganda coming from the government uh so uh and and i mean and the rules of the of the game uh inside uh the country uh was uh striking you know every every month uh before uh be, be, before the invasion so not so much things were possible in terms of uh, public politics so for example it was not possible to i don't know to uh organize a main uh, main day legal demonstration in moscow uh, it was not possible to organize the uh, big um, congress for example of i don't know political or social movements 
in in some place in the, in, uh, in, in in the city. So the situation already was uh, pretty much controlled um, uh, from 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 the top. Uh, um, the uh, in terms of the political left. The main I, I will st I will start from uh, from the most radical part to the uh, communist party. Uh, so the uh, the most uh, uh, of repressions came uh, against the anarchist and antifa uh, groups in uh, in uh, years before uh, before the the war. Uh, so the let's say. Antifa uh, scene in in Moscow, uh, which let's say ten years ago was very uh, very important, uh, very active, very very big. Uh, they they could mobilize uh, you know thousands of uh, young uh, people to the to the streets. So uh, that scene was already destroyed. Uh, many activists uh, were arrested or, or forced to uh, to leave. Uh, the same you can say about the uh, anarchist uh, groups, but of course Antifa and anarchist uh, groups were very much related. But uh, you can say that uh, the uh, number of anarchist uh, groups were uh, already already destroyed by the uh, by, by the government to, to that moment so on this uh, side antifa and the anarchist movement the situation was already quite uh, quite bad i will say uh then uh you had uh, <clears throat> and by the way i'm sorry Elia, just listeners if you want to go back a couple of years we wrote about in counterpunch repression against anarchist activists in crimea uh those that had been jailed in crimea for their work as well as those that Ilya is referring to in moscow st petersburg and elsewhere we did have several articles about that in counterpunch back i don't know 2015 16 17 18 in those years Go ahead, Elia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The repressions were very serious. Yes, so there were cases of tortures and all, all, all this kind of uh, things. So the aim was to uh, to disorganize uh, this um, uh, scene as a, as a, as a whole. Um, so uh, then you can uh, you can um, say that there were some kind of radical uh, radical left outside of the uh, communist uh, communist party uh let's say various trotskyist groups uh and of course many kind of stalinist uh, uh stalinist um, uh, groups and uh, networks uh <clears throat> to the moment uh of the of the start of the invasion uh let's say main three uh, Trotskyist, uh, Trotskyist groups, uh, they, uh, they were against invasion, uh, before they were, uh, against, uh, the anti-democratic, uh, measures of the, of the government. Uh, most of them, uh, supported, uh, the, um, uh, anti-corruption protests, uh, like, uh, those, uh, that was organized by, by Navalny group. 
Uh, and uh, all of them uh, were pretty involved in the various uh, un uh, union, uh, unionist and um, uh, students' uh, activities. Then uh, uh, there were a number of uh, Stalinist groups, and uh, it's important thing that uh, the uh, the big split inside the Russian left uh, in terms of um, <clears throat> let's say attitude to the imperialist ambitions of uh, of, of the government uh, happened uh, already after uh, 2014 after the annexation of Crimea and the start of the uh, military uh, Russian military involvement in the in the east uh, of Ukraine because a number of uh, Stalinist uh, groups um, they uh, they supported uh, in one way or another the, <clears throat> the Russian uh, the Russian government and uh, even some figures uh, from the democratic left like Boris Kogarlitsky they supported the uh, the Russian government they supported the annexation um, annexation of Crimea with uh, some kind of explanations that uh, it is the form of the struggle against um, Western imperialism. Uh, also, they pointed out that in the east of Ukraine there was some uh, workers' uh, self-organization, so it was a mostly kind of um, uh, class-based uh, uh, movement and, and not uh, um, invasion. Uh, uh, so uh, then uh, you have the uh, the Communist Party, uh, the Communist Party, which uh, of course uh, played an important role in the uh, Putin's uh, political system. Uh, so it was the uh, the party of the let's say, of the managed democracy. So it was a party uh, which never uh, had, uh, uh, you know, the full agency. So it's it's hard to, to controlled imagine. Controlled opposition, controlled yeah, opposition. Controlled opposition. So it, it means that uh, all the leading, um, uh, all the leading figures of the Communist Party, they uh, consulted uh, with, with Kremlin uh, about all the main, let's say, political questions. Uh, financially, they uh, they were also uh, very much dependent uh, by the state. So, uh, to the uh, to the last year, uh, I think that uh, eighty percent of the of the budget of the uh, Communist Party uh, came uh, came from the state. As the as the donations uh, that uh, any uh, Russian party presented in the parliament uh, could uh, could uh, gain uh, uh, from the state. So, uh, but at the same time, uh, there was a, um, uh, the, there was a contradiction in between the. Uh, political orientation of the leadership of the uh, Communist Party and uh, its electoral base. Uh, this electoral base uh, was uh, changing. Uh, it, uh, it was uh, becoming much more 
uh, younger, uh, much more uh, presented in the, in the big cities, and uh, much more uh, growing because of the uh, uh, growing uh, oppositional sentiment in the Russian society in general. So the vote for the Communist Party became the, the only possible way uh, uh, inside this system to express your, <clears throat> your dissatisfaction, uh, dissatisfaction with the uh, social situation, dissatisfaction with the political regime, uh, and so on. <clears throat> also, uh, it's important to stress that the, the what the ideology of the of the uh, communist party the ideological orientation of uh, its leading members uh, all the time was not just uh, stalinist but also russian nationalist so the russian nationalism uh, was the uh, integral part of the uh, of the program uh, of the Russian Communist Party from its very beginning, from the early 90s, uh, when uh, all the things about uh, Orthodox Christianity, that, that is a very important thing, uh, Russian civilization, which is different from the West. So West is, uh, uh, is um, uh, capitalist, uh, West is uh, mercantilist, uh, it's uh, egoist, uh, but the Russian civilization is uh, kind of naturally socialist in, in, in some way. So justice is a part of the, uh, of the Russian uh, culture, uh, of the of the Russian history and, and things like this. So you can see that the distance uh, between uh, this, uh, this um, kind of ideas and uh, the anti-capitalism of, um, <clears throat> for example, Nazis uh, in the 30s in Germany, who also condemned the uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, capitalism and uh, confront this Anglo-Saxon capitalism with the uh, proletarian uh, nature of the German nation. Uh, so you can see that uh, they're, um, they're, they're comparable, you know, these forms of uh, <clears throat> uh, nationalist, imperialist uh, sort of anti-capitalism where the, the anti-capitalism itself became a, like an empty signifier that could be fulfilled with uh, all possible kinds of the uh, nationalist ideas. Uh, that's why, uh, of course, uh, why uh, the leadership of the Communist Party from the very beginning uh, supported the annexation of Crimea, uh, supported the aggressive politics uh, against Ukraine uh, and against the uh, whole, uh, let's say, uh, post-Soviet space. So the idea that the, the current <clears throat> Russian Federation is the, the, is the geopolitical catastrophe, is the, is the product of uh, some, uh, some uh, kind of defeat in the, in the cold uh, in the cold war and the uh, aim of uh, uh, russia to restore uh, its like historical uh, integrity 
which is the same that to restore the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union was, according to this approach, more about territory, but uh, not so much about uh, certain uh, ideas and programs uh, and so on. So uh, this, uh, this uh, kind of uh, very chauvinist uh, view uh, was always uh, typical uh, for the leadership and, and a big part of the membership uh, of the uh, Russian Communist Party. In a, in a sense, it's like Soviet nostalgia in the service of Russian imperial revanchism combined with that, you know, Russian nationalist or what Lenin would have called great Russian chauvinism. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, but I want to I want to stress again uh, that uh, the uh, the significant part of the Communist Party voters they voted uh, not uh, for uh, for the ideas of chauvinist revanche. They voted for uh, for uh, democracy and they voted for uh, social justice, uh, because uh, in fact, to the moment when uh, uh, when uh, the uh, the Russian troops uh, start to be concentrated near uh, near uh, Ukrainian border, the uh, program of imperialist revenge already was a program of Kremlin. It was already a program of United Russia. And uh, there were not so much uh, differences in, in the sense between the Communist Party, uh, the leadership of the Communist Party and uh, Putin and, and his, uh, his party, United Russia. You know, it, it, I'm, I'm so happy to have you here to give us this perspective because I've been meaning to ask, uh, well, actually, I, I think I asked Boris Kagarlitsky when he was on the show a number of months ago, but I want to ask you, is the question of Lenin debated? Is it part of the discourse? Because Putin started this war with his grand speech where he implicates Lenin specifically, the Bolsheviks, that the entire problem of Ukraine is essentially a, a product of the dastardly Bolsheviks and their plots, you know, you understand. So this is the legacy of the left. This is the revolutionary legacy for, you know, Marxists today. Is this contested? Is it even possible to contest this historical interpretation in anything but, you know, uh, on the fringes? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, so the, the place of uh, Lenin in, in the official uh, Kremlin's uh, ideology, in, in the official, uh, let's say, uh, politics of memory, in Russia was very controversial uh, because uh, as the as the politician as the uh, individual uh, he was uh, always criminalized he was always portrayed as a kind of negative uh, negative figure uh, and uh, what Putin uh, said uh, about Lenin who created uh, Ukraine in his uh, famous speech before invasion it was not not the first time when he uh, he condemned uh, condemn Lenin in, in, the, in this way. So even, uh, for example, in uh, 2014, uh, when, uh, you know, the annexation of Crimea happened, and also it was the anniversary of the First World War, uh, Putin uh, gave a speech uh, on nearby some new monument to the heroes of the First World War. And he uh, literally um, uh, repeat the idea of a knife uh, uh, on a knee, uh, that, uh, that uh, the victory was near, 
um, uh, in the 1917. Uh, the victory of the Russian army, but the Russian soldiers were were betrayed uh, by revolutionary fanatics, uh, by by people like Lenin, uh, who uh, who played a significant role in the destruction of the uh, Russian Empire, and then uh, put a time bomb time bomb <laughs> on the foundation of the uh, Soviet Union. So uh, it's one of the <clears throat> important uh, sides of Putin's char character that he uh, he's repeating and developing the same ideas again and again. And um, uh, this kind of anti-Leninist uh, stance for uh, for him was uh, was uh, very, um, uh, let's say, typical. Right. Uh, but uh, also uh, the official uh, line in Russia based on the idea of, uh, of the continuity of the Russian history, uh, based on the idea that uh, during all its history, it was the same uh, state, it was the same territory, uh, it was the same, uh, the same people. Uh, but occasionally under the different uh, names and different political systems. So in this sense, uh, the uh, Lenin's Russia was the same Russia as uh, in the times of the uh, empire, but in a, in a kind of new form. In the, uh, in the same way, the post-Soviet Russia was the same as the Soviet but also in some new uh, new historical form. If you want to find some uh, ideological uh, uh, like roots <laughs> of this uh, idea of the historical continuity, you uh, you uh, have to look to the legacy of the of this um, uh, so-called smena uh, uh, change of the uh, signposts, yeah, uh, group. Uh, of the white uh, Russian immigrants uh, in in twenties, uh, who uh, who uh, called for the support of the uh, Soviet Union, and especially the support of the uh, emerging uh, Stalin's uh, dictatorship, as their form as a new form of the Russian Empire. And uh, this idea was very very uh, much uh, distributed. Uh, in that time and various forms um, <clears throat> in the uh, in, in in the Russian white immigration. Yes, so uh, I think that uh, these ideas uh, were uh, were taken uh, and adopted uh, uh, somehow uh, in, uh, in 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 the present Russia. And it's also, I mean, it's partially a rejection of uh, Lenin as a historical figure and as a political actor, but it's not so much that Putin cares as much about Lenin's ideas about democratic centralism, about how you debate, you know, Bolshevik, uh, you know, positions so much as it feels like Lenin's real rejection of Lenin is the rejection on the question of the right of nations to self-determination, on the question of the rights of peoples of the former empire, right? That's ultimately what Putin seems to be objecting to the idea that Lenin and, uh, you know, his faction of the Bolsheviks had that peoples of the, the quote unquote prison house of nations should be able to determine their own futures. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah, yeah, I, pre, I, I pretty agree with it. Yeah, and 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 of course, uh, of course, Putin, uh, Putin uh, share the national program uh, taken from the White uh, Army, let's say in the Civil War, uh, and not uh, not the Bolsheviks. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I'm going to continue the conversation with Ilya Butraitskis. There's so much to talk about. We could go for many hours. We won't do that this time, but stick with us and go over to Counterpunch, get your subscription. We'll talk to you again in a few minutes. back chatting with Ilya Budraitskis. Again, the book, I would highly recommend you get yourselves a copy, Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia, uh, came out just before the war began. So quite a lot has happened in the last uh, 16 months or so, but I would I would definitely recommend you get yourselves a copy. Um, so Ilya, before the break, we were talking a little bit about Putin and his historical perspective. And I want to you mentioned a little bit about the intellectual um, origins of some of these ide- uh, ideas, I- Ivan Ilyin and others, of course. But um, there are other figures that you wrote about in your book that don't have as much of a historical spotlight that I think that you wanted to spotlight, a tradition of thought in the Soviet Union that is to, to a large degree unknown. Can you explain a little bit more about that, about that f- from your book? Uh, so... Uh- yeah, uh, uh, my my book is uh, partly uh, devoted to the <clears throat> to the legacy of the uh, of the dissidents movement in the Soviet Union, uh, and um, 
especially uh, I was interested uh, in uh, in the legacy of the socialist left-wing uh, dissidents um, uh, in the Soviet Union starting from late uh, 50s uh, to the early uh, to the early 80s so let's say to the post uh, post-war uh, Soviet Union uh, and uh, in uh, in this research I, I had uh, a clear uh, like political uh, interest because for me this uh, legacy was uh, was so important uh, exactly because of the uh, because of the need uh, of continuity uh, of the historical continuity i think that uh, one of the uh, major uh, problems of the uh, of the russian left was the lack of this continuity uh, so there is a famous uh, famous definition uh, of Hannah Arendt uh, about the uh, uh, say uh, leg legacy without uh, without the zvishenia. Uh, oh, <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know that one. I yeah, so that basically, one. That, that that you have a they have a legacy, but you have no access to this legacy. Okay. You have no 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 like direct link with this uh, with this legacy, uh, and that is exactly about the type of the relations between the legacy of the Russian Revolution, the legacy of the um, uh, Bolshevism, uh, revolutionary Marxism of the beginning of the uh, 20th century and the uh, post-Soviet left. Uh, because um, definitely there, there, there was a, a, a rupture there was a tragic rupture because of uh, Stalinist uh, Stalinist terror, uh, because of the repressive regime uh, in the in the Soviet Union, because of the uh, of the uh, revolutionary Marxism uh, was uh, was uh, turned into kind of. Uh, official uh, ideology uh, uh, which was uh, totally uh, dogmatic and no, non-reflective and uh, which was uh, and, and which was the main problem with the official marxism in, in soviet union that uh, it was the way of the uh, permanent um, uh, permanent uh, distortion of the picture of the reality so that Marxist language was used not uh, in in uh, in in order to to explain the the true nature of things, but in order to cover to cover true nature of things, to to give another uh, names, another explanations to the uh, real uh, real problems, real uh, class uh, conflicts, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. So just uh, a main example of it that the very existence of the ruling elite of the um, of the soviet union uh, the bureaucracy nomenclatura or whatever was covered by the official marxism because according to official explanation of the soviet society for example in the uh, 60s and 70s was the idea that 
uh, in the uh, so case so the Soviet Union is not fully uh, communist so that uh, that is still a sort of transitional state but in this transitional state you have uh, two classes uh, which are friendly classes uh, which which sounds like a nonsense from uh, from the Marxist point of view but two friendly classes and uh, one uh, and, and they are peasants and and workers and one layer so it's not real class but kind of a layer between uh, between these two and that is uh, intelligentsia the the intellectual kind of strata uh, and uh, this uh, kind of official uh, explanation of <clears throat> of the structure of the soviet society uh, was established in order to cover the existence of social strata of uh, let's say nomenclature the social strata of uh, of bureaucracy and all these uh, questions all these uh, differences and striking conflicts between the marxist method and the way how it was uh, used uh, uh, by by the uh, by the regime in the Soviet Union was in the center of reflection of the uh, of this left wing uh, dissident of the socialist dissidents uh, during all these uh, post uh, post war uh, decades in the uh, Soviet Union and uh, I think that this uh, legacy is very important as the as the the uh the the, the kind of uh, link with the uh, with the previous legacy of bolshevism revolutionary marxism and so on uh, that, that was missing uh in uh today's uh let's say consciousness of the uh of the russian left Unfortunately, we don't have a ton of time to go into it, but just to wrap up that point, can you explain the difference um, intellectually the, that there existed between those Marxists and other dissidents operating in the early period of what's called the thaw, you know, the post-Stalin Khrushchev period versus those trying to work through the, you know, more reactionary Brezhnev period? How much did it change over those years between, say, you know, the mid-1950s, late 1950s, early 1960s and into the 1970s and 80s? Uh, definitely, there, there are different periods. Uh, because the, not only uh, socialist dissidents, but uh, dissidents as uh, as the phenomena um, uh, were started uh, in the late fifties, uh, uh, and uh, it was started not in the form of uh, let's say human rights movement as it became uh, uh, later on, but it was started as the as the political movement. Uh, is the political movement which uh, which was not uh, satisfied with uh, Khrushchev's um, program of uh, destalinization, which was trying to search for uh, some more uh, proper Marxist understanding of uh, why Stalinism was <clears throat> was possible, what was the the reason uh, why 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 uh, this um, uh, degeneration of the initial Lenin's uh, project was uh, was possible, 
in in Soviet in Soviet Union, uh, and uh, uh, that was the movement which had the political uh, perspective. Uh, how to even to push a, a current elite for some more radical uh, social and political changes in the Soviet Union. But uh, later on, uh, under uh, Brezhnev, uh, after the the wave of uh, the first wave of repressions against the uh, against the dissident movement, the uh, the um, uh, perspective of this movement changed. And let's say from late uh, 60s, uh, the uh, the main uh, kind of idea of the of the uh, for the most of uh, dissidents in the Soviet Union was uh, not a political change, but a struggle for uh, basic uh, uh, human rights. So you can say that the the ethics uh, somehow replaced the the, the politics. And uh, in that moment, uh, let's say the, the socialists, the left-wingers, they became a minority in the, uh, in the dissident movement, uh, which act in the cooperation with this mainstream uh, kind of human, right, uh, dissident, uh, human rights dissidents. Uh, but uh, in the same time, they were trying to establish their own uh, analysis of uh, of the <clears throat> of the soviet union uh, of of the uh, ruling uh, bureaucracy and, uh, and so on uh, so in in my book i focused not uh, mostly not um, er, er, uh, around the uh, the history uh, like the the groupings, the individuals, and so on, but uh, but mostly um, I focused on uh, on on the programs. I, I focused on the ideas, and you can uh, find their uh, kind of uh, explanations of the various uh, various ideas of the of the different left-wing uh, dissidents uh, dissident groupings so i i think in this sense this uh, this uh, piece of, of this book <laughs> because my my book is is not uh, just uh, about the the socialist dissidents but uh, uh, i think that uh, this uh, dissidents chapter uh, is uh, is very much uh, relevant uh, because it uh, present a uh, kind of different uh, opportunities uh, dif and, and, uh, and different uh, type of continuity with the, uh, with the current Russian left. Because, uh, of course, if you look at, uh, at, at, at the Communist Party uh, for now, if you look at the most of these uh, Stalinist uh, chauvinist groups uh, that uh, supported uh, uh, that supported the invasion, uh, you can see the, uh, how their uh, their uh, explanations uh, came uh, from the from the legacy of uh, Stalinism and especially the late Stalinism, the Stalinism of the late uh, 40s and early uh, 50s, when uh, the whole <clears throat> uh, 
Russian chauvinist imperialist rhetorics uh, was uh, was adopted by by Stalin and and, and his uh, government. Part of the reason it's important to kind of excavate this tradition of uh, you know Russian socialist analysis and Marxist analysis is because we do have not only that historic legacy obviously goes without saying, but we have these questions today that are still being debated that require in my view at least, uh, uh, a Marxist analysis. And the obvious question, the one that continues to be debated, is how do we describe Russia and Russia's war in Ukraine? Is this to be understood as an imperialist war? Is Russia a junior imperialist? Is this an inter-imperialist conflict? Many formulations of this question. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to dis not, not so much say, is this an imperialist war, but to what extent is Russia's invasion to be understood as an imperialist war? Maybe another way to say that, to what extent can our Marxist tools, going back to Lenin and Lenin's definition of imperialism and all the way forward, to what extent can we apply that understanding and that method to understanding Russia today? Uh, so I, I will say that, uh, unfortunately, most of the left, like internationally, they still uh, reduce the understanding of uh, imperialism uh, only to, let's say, uh, economic interests. Yes, so you have this very poor uh, understanding that, uh, okay, you have the uh, objective economic needs of the some collective uh, capitalist elite. Uh, you have a state which uh, act as as the as a tool of this uh, interest, and that's uh, how the imperialist wars uh, are uh, are organized. And uh, that, that is uh, that is not true. It's not definitely true uh, even for United States, uh, as uh, for example David Harvey explained in his book uh, New Imperialism. Uh, the war in Iraq is was not it was not just a war for oil. Of course, there the, were the interest of the oil corporations uh, and so on, but they came after the interests of the state, which were mostly uh, military, uh, political, and ideological. Yeah? And uh, they uh, didn't, uh, didn't uh, uh, only serve <laughs> the interests uh, of uh, financial, uh, financial groups. And that is very uh, important um, uh, part of Lenin's an uh, analysis of uh, imperialism, uh, because uh, I, I think what is what is very important uh, moment in Lenin's analysis is uh, that in uh, in imperialism you have the you have, as Lenin explained, they change the whole relations between the state and and the capital. Yeah, you have a kind of merge uh, between the uh, state, uh, state and the capital, and you can uh, say that the sta state uh, continue to serve uh, just as the, uh, you know, some committee, <laughs> uh, uh, political committee for, uh, for the uh, for the big capital. So in this sense, you can say that uh, Russian war is definitely imperialist. But it's is uh, not uh, just uh, uh, just uh, something that uh, uh, that uh, related to uh, 
economic interests of of uh, uh, Russian capitalist uh, Russian capitalist class. It's also a big problem with the very understanding what is the Russian capitalist class. Because if you are talking about the Russian capitalist class, like politically, that it is a kind of political, uh, uh, some kind of political entity with uh, its own political agenda, with its own political interests. So in this sense, you can say that the Russian capitalist class uh, doesn't exist because uh, it has no any political agency. Yes, so it was uh, totally politically expropriated by the state uh, if, uh, in the very beginning of uh, Putin's, uh, Putin's rule in the early uh, 2000s. So uh, in this sense, you can say that is imperialist war, but imperialist uh, in terms of uh, military and political, uh, political domination, because the you know the whole uh, the whole uh, uh, consciousness of the uh, of the of the of the Russian um, of the Russian political elite of the Russian ruling elite is uh, um, is based on the uh, idea that the whole uh, post-Soviet space uh, is the part of the. Uh, some kind of natural, uh, natural uh, interests uh, of Russia, also in the terms of uh, military political uh, mm -hmm. control, and uh, the uh, this invasion uh, is uh, definitely a result of the loss of any forms of uh, hegemony, and you uh, you see how the Russian regime uh, lost. Its um, uh, its hegemony, its political hegemony, its uh, ideological uh, hegemony uh, in the post-Soviet uh, in the post-Soviet space, and you see how uh, how he uh, how it is trying to replace this loss of hegemony uh, by uh, by the military presence, by the pure force. Yes. And this is and this is true. This is true not only in Ukraine. We saw Russia send its military into Kazakhstan in January of 2022 to put down a workers' uprising. We know Russia has been involved in destabilization efforts in Moldova and elsewhere. So it's certainly not relegated only to Eastern Ukraine. No, no, no. It's not only about Ukraine. It's it's about the the Caucasus. It's about the Central Asia, uh, about about Moldova uh, and, and and so on. Uh, because everywhere you uh, you basically had the same uh, problem, uh, the 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 same uh, the same attempts of uh, Russia to to dominate uh, like politically in in the area and uh, lack of uh, uh, lack of possibility to gain uh, to. Um, to keep uh, the political and ideological uh, you know influence yeah and i think uh, of course it's it's a big question how it happened how it happened that ukraine for example that uh, that uh, let's say 20 years ago was the uh, was the country where the vast majority of the uh, population uh, in various surveys uh, 
definitely supported all types of uh, economic uh, and political cooperation with uh, with Russia, uh, which uh, rejected uh, the uh, NATO membership. So if you look at the service in the early uh, 2000s, uh, there were less than 10% of Ukrainians who uh, supported the, uh, the um, uh, affiliation with, uh, with NATO. Yeah, how, uh, how this country with this population, with all this, uh, uh, all this uh, role of the Russian language uh in the in the in this country because you know i i was uh, in ukraine like many times i remember uh, like kiev uh, like uh, some 20 years ago and that was uh, that was uh, as uh, mostly russian-speaking uh city yeah with, without any strong anti-russian sentiment at all so it was impossible 20 years ago to imagine a strong Russian uh, anti-Russian sentiment in uh, in Kyiv. Uh, so how this country was uh, turned to a country where uh, people uh, massively uh, refused to uh, to use Russian language, e even if the uh, Russian language is uh, their uh, mother tongue language. And they refused uh, refused to use it because of the because of the political and ideological reasons because it's the enemy uh, is, is the enemy's language is the language of the <laughs> of the other state uh, that is uh, that is uh, trying uh, to destroy their their sovereignty their uh, right for the self determination uh, and, and so on, and I think it uh, it this transit <laughs> from one condition to another uh, happened because of the uh, course of the Russian uh, of the Russian government, which was uh, which was imperialist, uh, not only uh, like economic imperialist, but also. Uh, imperialist politically and ideologically so which means that they never fully recognized uh, the uh, right of ukraine to exist so what what uh, what you have now in this official's explanation that uh, the the uh, look at the maps of um, uh, of the uh, 17th century uh, you can't find uh, ukraine on on, the, on this map yeah, that was, uh, I, I'm not joking, that was uh, from one of the uh, recent Putin's, uh, Putin's uh, meetings. They were uh, like uh, <clears throat> researching uh, this map together with uh, some of his, uh, some of his uh, uh, bureaucrats. Uh, so uh, they never recognized the, uh, the very agency of Ukraine. They never recognized the uh, the agency of the uh, Central Asian uh, republics or uh, states like Armenia. So, for, uh, for what you have now coming uh, from the uh, Russian uh, officials openly, uh, was uh, was uh, existed like years and years before, uh, but not in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. So now you have a kind of coming out of all this uh, imperialist aggressive 
uh, aggressive sentiments. And uh, I think if we look at the imperialism as phenomena, uh, we, uh, we can identify it uh, also as a kind of worldview of the, uh, of the elites of, of one or another state, mm -hmm. as the way how they understand the, the world, the relations between the uh, countries, how they understand uh, their uh, like a fundamental inequality in between uh, in between the various uh, countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and uh, that that is very typical for uh, for uh, any uh, any sort of uh, uh, any sort of imperialism. No question about it. We'll have to leave it there. Ilya Bedraiskis has been my guest today. Ilya is a historian and political activist. He is a member of the Russian Socialist Movement and an author. The book, Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia. Make sure you get yourselves a copy of that. Ilya, thank you so much for coming to Counterpunch and chatting with us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Thank you so Listeners, much. Listeners, viewers, thank you as always, and we will chat again very soon.